you may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. Uh, If you need a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand and our ushers will put one in your lap for you. It'll be a lot easier to go through the scriptures if you have it open. And as you get your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, 2.0 this morning. And I've titled this message, New Beginnings. Um, Obviously, this is the beginning of a new year. The gyms are full. McDonald's has never sold so many salads. It is an amazing stat, by the way. People still go to McDonald's, but they're like, I'll have a salad. It's not fully removing the temptation. It's just removing it a little bit. Um, AA meetings are the most crowded, usually in January. And it's a great time to set New Year's resolutions or to set goals or to make lifestyle changes. And all of those things are good. There's many of us who look at our lives and we recognize, hey, I may be falling short in this or I could steward this over here better. And it provides an opportunity with, from a calendar perspective as a new year, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different. And as we look at this idea of resolutions or new lifestyles or setting goals, I want to encourage us in something. We can either set these goals or resolutions with selfish motives or we can set them with divine direction. And we're going to look at what the difference is between the selfish motives and divine direction this morning. And what I want to propose to you is that as you consider maybe changing habits or trying to do something different in this new year, that it does matter where your heart is. God looks at the intent of the heart much more than he does the goal on paper. God is more concerned about the motives behind what you're doing than he is about you accomplishing the task. And as we look at this chapter in Nehemiah this morning, what I love is it shows Nehemiah, this incredible godly man, and yet still a man who falls short of God's glory. It shows his response to the divine passion that God has put on his heart. So we're going to begin Nehemiah this morning in the first four verses, and then we're going to get into some historical context. It'll be really helpful to look at kind of the time period and history of what's happening so that we can get a better understanding of how this applies to our lives. So Nehemiah chapter one, beginning in verse one, says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev. In the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
To unpack a little bit, to give us some understanding of what's going on in this time period, Nehemiah is living in what's known as the Medo-Persian Empire. This is happening in the Middle East, and this is the year 446 BC. We know that because it tells us that this is in the 20th year, 20th year being the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And it talks about how this is what is known as the month of Chislev. This would have been according to the Hebrew calendar. And that was the ninth month in the Hebrew calendar, which is roughly in the time frame of December and January, very close to where we are now in our own calendar year. And we learn that Nehemiah is in a foreign kingdom. He is not in the, he is not in the nation of Judah. He's not living in Jerusalem. Instead, he's in the Medo-Persian Empire in a place called Shushan, or some of your Bibles may say Susa. This was the winter palace for the Medo-Persian kings. And just to give you a little bit of idea of the Medo-Persian kingdom empire, they loved opulence, wealth, extravagance. As a matter of fact, they taxed their provinces incredibly hard for the purpose of living a lavish lifestyle. And we see that Nehemiah is connected to King Artaxerxes. He is a servant of King Artaxerxes. We'll learn a little bit later. He is what's known as a cupbearer. This is almost like a confidant, someone that King Artaxerxes would have had a very special and close relationship with because he needed to trust Nehemiah because Nehemiah was responsible for making sure the king wasn't poisoned and killed. It's amazing to begin thinking about when you look at the big picture where God has placed Nehemiah. He's been displaced from his homeland. He's been taken as a captive out of Judah. He's been forced to serve in Babylon or the Medo-Persian Empire. And yet God, through his divine providence, has been working in Nehemiah's life to put him at the right hand of the king for a very special task. And to get a little bit more understanding of what's going on in this time period, how many of you remember the name King Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, probably most of us. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful king out of the entire Babylonian empire. And he's also the one who is responsible for besieging and destroying the city of Jerusalem. Uh, some of the kings of Israel after David and Solomon and the nation had split into two were supposed to be paying tribute tax to Nebuchadnezzar and they rebel and stop doing it. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't having it. So he comes and he lays waste to Jerusalem. And he does this in parts, but as he does it, he actually takes many of the people captive, specifically those of royal blood or who were educated, and he brings them back into the Babylonian empire as captives, and he leaves a small remnant of people in the city of Jerusalem. They're poor, they're destitute, they have no power, and they are literally living in the rubble for hundreds of years. And Nehemiah gets this word from a brethren who has come from Jerusalem into the Medo-Persian Empire. And the guy gives a bad report. The gates are burned with fire. The city is destroyed. And our brothers and sisters are miserable and living in poverty. And here's what this does for us as we begin to unpack the scripture. I don't, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But I just wanna, I want you to think. In your own life, are there areas where your gates are burned with fire. 
where you're poor, where you feel like you have nothing, where you feel like everything is broken and you can't fix it. That was the condition of Jerusalem. And it's often the condition of our own lives in certain areas. But certainly when we look at the bigger picture, it is the picture of who we are without Jesus Christ. We're in ruins. We're in rubble. We can't rebuild because we're not strong enough or we don't have the spiritual resources. And Nehemiah gets this word and his response is that he is heartbroken. It says that he sits down and he wept and mourned for many days. To give you a little bit more context of what's going on at this time is King Artaxerxes is the son of King Xerxes. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have seen the movie 300? That Xerxes. He's a real historical character. That is not a real historical movie, just to be clear. Uh, but Xerxes is a real historical character. And Artaxerxes is his son. And what's amazing is how many of you remember who was the wife to King Xerxes? It's Esther from the book of Esther in the Bible. And what had happened was... After Nebuchadnezzar had died, as his sons and others got raised up to be kings, there were specific kings named Cyrus and Darius who began allowing Jews to go back to Jerusalem. They were having a hard time managing this massive empire. And so they started letting people return to their homelands to hopefully help stabilize and steward the region. And throughout this time, when Xerxes was king, his goal was to overthrow and conquer the Greek empire. And this is where many of those popular wars during that time period in both the 500s and 400s BC happen, where we get a lot of movies in which the Medo-Persian empire is fighting the Greeks. And Xerxes cannot overthrow the Greeks. He still maintains the most powerful empire in the world, but he can't expand his territory because of the Greeks. So Artaxerxes, his son, when he comes to power, has it in his head, I'm going to do what my dad never could. And that's the goal that he sets for himself. Because if he can overcome the Greek empire, what does that mean for him? More money and more power. And here's what we see at the beginnings of this book in Nehemiah. Artaxerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, has a goal. He has a resolution. His desire is to seek expanding his kingdom for whose sake? For himself, for his own wealth, and for his own power. Nehemiah is given a divine direction, a passion on his heart. His heart is literally broken for his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And God gives him a desire, a resolution, a goal to make a difference. And who is that for? It's for God and his people. It's not for Nehemiah. If anything, it will make Nehemiah's life harder. And yet it's what God is calling him to do. You see, passion can be driven by selfish motives or divine direction. Passion can be driven by selfish motives or divine direction. If we take a simple example, hey, I would like to get in better shape. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's a trick question, isn't it? <laughs> From a health perspective, it's good. 
We should want to steward our bodies well. But here's the issue. If our heart is like, hey, I want to get in shape so people are like, dang, look at that guy. Or, hey, look at that girl. Or, man, your body's amazing. Who does that glorify? It glorifies ourselves, and that's a problem. Even the good things in life with selfish motives will corrupt the things that we pursue. And here's what I know about myself, and here's what I know about humanity according to God's word. This isn't to beat anybody up, but it is to look at the reality of who we are because we have a sinful nature. It is our default to seek personal glory. It's our default to seek personal gain. It's our default to seek personal pleasure. But when we know that about ourselves, we can begin to take things like goals or resolutions or desires of our heart and begin to hold them up to God's word and go, is this a selfish motive that I have? Or is this a divine passion that God has called me to steward for his namesake and to build others up? And Nehemiah's heart is being broken for his people. And what I love is that we have Artaxerxes who wants to pursue passions for himself. And we have Nehemiah who wants to pursue the passions that God has put on my life. Which one are you? Where are you at today? Are you pursuing things for selfish motives? And if that's the case, good news. We're going to cover today how we can take selfish motives and instead lay them before God's feet and pursue what he's putting on our heart. Nehemiah chapter one, I'm going to read verse four again, and then we're going to take a long section of scripture all the way through verse 11. This is going to be a prayer of Nehemiah to God in response to the bad news or the bad report that he's received. And as we get into this text, here's what I would encourage you to do. Listen to the tone of Nehemiah's voice. What is his emotional state? Where do you think his head is at as he's praying? And then in addition to his tone, I want you to listen specifically about how he chooses to pray. Um, how many of us have ever prayed the prayer? God, help me. Anybody? Yeah, probably most of us, right? And that's not a bad prayer to pray, but here's often what happens for Sunday-only Christians is that tends to be the only type of prayer we pray, maybe along with Jesus, thank you for this food. And we miss out on the depth of the relationship that God has for us. And we will see that Nehemiah, just through the way that he prays, we can see the incredible relationship that he has with God even in the structure of his prayer. Do you pray like Nehemiah? Perhaps something that you may want to do is to seek to pray like Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter one, read verse four again, and then we'll get into the prayer. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, 
day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That is the city of Jerusalem. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. Everyone say, you have redeemed. By your great power and by your strong hand. Take note in verse 10 of all the yours that Nehemiah is assigning to God. Verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him, that's Nehemiah, mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? This man is King Artaxerxes, for I was the king's cupbearer. We see the divine passion placed upon Nehemiah's heart. It causes him to cry out to the Lord. Just in the silence of your own mind, for just a moment, what has God passionately put on your heart? What has God passionately put on your heart? It could be your marriage. And a desire to grow with your spouse or to grow together in Christ. It could be in your parenting. Whether you have young children or children that have moved out of the home. Rebuilding relationship. Or establishing a connection that hasn't been there with one of your children. Or stewarding them better as a parent. Perhaps it's someone in your neighborhood. Someone that you've been praying for for a long time. Maybe it's the person three doors down that you're always praying that they move so that the neighborhood gets better. (laughs) And yet perhaps God would change your heart to pray that he would use you to bring them to Christ. It could be your health and making more health conscious decisions for the purpose of stewarding what God's given you. And to be around for your family and your church family. It could be renewal and finances. And better caring for what God has gifted you. Whatever it is. A divine passion is something that God puts on your heart. That allows you to bring glory and honor to him. Instead of yourself. And what I love about Nehemiah. As we unpack this prayer verses 5 through 11 is he reveals how we are to respond to a divine passion put on our heart. Notice in verse 4, towards the end of verse 4, it says that he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is how we respond to divine passion. One of those things is fasting. Fasting. 
Now, for many people, intermittent fasting has become something that is a normal thing in their life, perhaps for health reasons. But the type of fasting we're talking about is not simply just to benefit self, but instead to deny our flesh, to deny ourselves in order to hear more clearly from God of what he wants in our life. And to give you just a small example, how many of you, when things are going difficult or you've had a hard day, a hard month, a hard year, how many of you are comfort food people? I'm a comfort food person big time. Um, I don't know how many times I'll say this, but like ice cream is my nemesis, right? If it's been a rough day, like a pint will do it, right? Um, and when handles moved in down the street, like all hope was lost. And <clears throat> But here's what fasting does. We have human tendencies that when things get difficult or we get discouraged, we often run to the things that this world can offer. And the reason we do that is either to experience comfort or to not have to deal with pain. And that's absolutely something that we do in our human condition. And yet what fasting does is, is it causes us to say, hey, I'm not going to participate in filling my flesh, trying to make myself feel better. Instead, I'm going to seek God's face by reading his word or by spending time in prayer or being surrounded in fellowship by other brothers and sisters in Christ for the purpose of trying to hear God's voice more clearly of, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Nothing gets past God. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter how surprising to us, because in God's sovereignty, he's in control of all things. He sees, knows, and allows whatever we're going through in our lives to happen. Therefore, if we are looking for answers or if we're looking for understanding of how to respond, naturally, where should we go? We should go back to God if he's the one who truly has understanding of our circumstances. Fasting is a denial of our flesh for the purpose of seeking God's spirit. Some biblical examples of this are uh, just even a, sh a short time period ago from here in Nehemiah. Um, Esther, when she is queen of all Babylon, her husband Xerxes has a right-hand man named Haman. And if you remember this story, Haman is wicked and he hates the Jews. So much so that he pulls a fast one on the king and he gets the king to sign a decree that says on this month, on this day, the entire Babylonian empire through a legal and binding document is able to go out and kill their Jewish neighbors and take their property. That's incredible. That's terrifying. Could you imagine the Jews living in the Babylonian empire at the time? And listen, it wasn't a couple hundred people. It was hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the Babylonian empire. And when this decree came out, how do you think the community of the Jews responded? I can only imagine they were terrified. They were trying to figure out, well, what do we do? And they had no authority and no power to do anything about it. And when Queen Esther hears... This is what she asks of the Jewish people. She asks them to fast for three days. Deny yourselves. I know you're going to want to try to fix this. I know you're going to want to try to run. I know you're going to want to try to lash out at other people. Just fast. 
Spend time seeking God's face because he's the only one who can overcome this massive problem, our extermination. And if you know the story, God gives Esther favor with King Xerxes and it's Haman who ends up being killed. And it's actually the Jews who benefit and prosper from an entirely different decree and edict that comes out. We know that in the book of Daniel, Remember, Daniel wasn't far off from Nehemiah either. He served as a prophet, even under King Darius in the Babylonian Empire. Daniel was taken from Jerusalem as a teenager in Nebuchadnezzar's captivity. He was an advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a young teenage man, educated and of royal blood, he's plucked out of Jerusalem, placed in the Babylonian Empire, and given the keys to the Las Vegas Strip. He's got the VIP card for the best buffets, for every strip club, for any place that he wants to go. And yet, what is Daniel's response? What does he do? He fasts. He chooses not to partake from the king's table in certain foods. Because the reality is, when we can deny our flesh in one area, it equips us to deny our flesh in others. And the purpose of fasting was so that Daniel could better understand, God, I don't know why I've been ripped from my homeland. I don't know why I'm here in Babylon. But if I seek your face, I know you'll use me and you'll reveal to me why I am here. Then perhaps the best example, when Jesus came to earth, one of the first things that happened in his public ministry is that he's baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And immediately the spirit of God leads him into the wilderness. And what does Jesus do for 40 days and 40 nights? He fasts. Now I do not recommend you start with a 40 day and 40 night fast. This was something that Jesus had probably been practicing most of his adult life. And the purpose behind it was that he knew that putting his flesh to death. Now think about what I'm saying. Putting his flesh to death would allow the spirit to rule and reign in his life. So that at the end of those 40 days, when Satan, the tempter, the devil comes to him. What is Jesus's response to the devil all three times he's tempted? It's just scripture. It's not lightning from his hands. It's not a special magic spell that you learn in seminary or in some religious school. It's not because he had more money or it's not because he had a bigger army. He literally took God's word, which was what he was feasting on during his time of fasting. And he used that to say no to Satan's temptations. This is how we respond when God puts a divine passion on our heart. Not just going, okay, Lord, I know that this is from you. So I'm going to start going and doing God's like, hey. Slow down. Bring this before me. Let me give you more clarity. Maybe take a day. Not to eat food. And yet instead of spending the time eating. To intentionally set that time aside. For getting into God's word. Some of us. Can't fast at all. From food for a whole day. Without major health problems. That's not what God's after. What is he looking at when you fast? He cares about the intent of your heart. Whether it's from sugar 
or whether it's from soda or whether it's from bread, I don't know. What God wants is you to say no to you and to say yes to seeking his face. And this is what Nehemiah does when he gets this troubling news, knowing that his heart is broken for his brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing that we see in verse four is not only is he fasting, but he's praying. And this may be elementary for some, and it might be revealing to others, but prayer is simply communication with God. What's the primary way that we hear God's voice? What is it? It's his word. It's this. This is how he speaks to us. And it does amaze me how often as pastors, we do do hear people go, I just wish God would speak to me. And I'm like, oh gosh, we just wish you'd open your Bible. (laughs) And we laugh about that, but isn't it true? Look at this. This is amazing. Thousands of years, 40 plus authors, 66 books, multiple languages, all put into English so that we can sit down at the coffee table in the morning and literally read the divine scriptures from a holy God. And if we want to hear his voice, this is where we go. And when we are fasting and when we're spending time in prayer, prayer is simply our response to what God has already communicated to us in his word. It's no different than a human relationship from the standpoint of to get to know somebody, you invest time with them. And one of the ways to invest time with God is by spending time in prayer. And here's something that I love. And Nehemiah models this well in verses 5 through 11. If you don't know how to pray or what to pray, God's word will teach you. And I know this for a fact. You are praying in God's will when you pray back his scriptures to him. Because if he's already spoken it to us and we simply affirm what he's already said, we are certainly in God's will. Think about this. In our own life, if we ever come before God and we're like, God, I think you want me to have more mercy for my my wife. I'm really struggling with my frustration, but uh, maybe that's a bad example. Jocelyn's amazing, by the way. (laughs) Not where this is going. (laughs) But if I come to him and go, help me to be more patient and humble with my wife. Am I in God's word? Am I in his will? You bet I am. I'm asking for his character to be magnified in me. And the same works in reverse. If I come to God and go, God, you know, I'd, these 60-hour work weeks are killing me. I'd, I'd really like to move to like a 20-hour work week with a pass at Bear Mountain and maybe a cabin too. Like that would be great. I can go back to God's word and go, is that what God desires for me? Is he interested in making my life easier in order to benefit myself? And God's word teaches that that is not the case. We respond to these divine passions with fasting and with prayer. And in this prayer of Nehemiah, he does something that's key for us. He holds on tightly to the promises of God's word. Now remember, Nehemiah lived in a time period. There was no New Testament. Much of the Old Testament had not been written, but the law was there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He had that. And Nehemiah, in his prayer, quotes, and if you have little footnotes here, he quotes from both the book of Leviticus and also the book of Deuteronomy. And all Nehemiah is doing is saying, hey, 
God, I know you've already promised these things. So this is what I'm going to cling to. This is where my hope's going to come from. And I want to look at two scriptures from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, I want to provide a little context before we read this. It'll be up on your screen, so you don't have to turn there. But here's the context. God makes conditional promises to Israel. Conditional meaning, hey, here's what I'm going to do, and now you need to hold up your end. Our salvation is unconditional, which means this. When we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, when we confess and we turn from our sin and say, hey, you are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, no one comes to the Father except through you. In a moment, we are saved, and that relationship is unconditional, which means even though I still sin in my life, does that nullify the promise God has given me? It does not. Thank you very much, Peter. It does not. That's an unconditional promise. These verses we're about to read in Deuteronomy are conditional promises only between God and the nation of Israel. You cannot insert the United States into this promise. And that's important for us to understand because if we take scripture out of context we could definitely find ourselves becoming a works-based group of people. And so understand, this promise is for Israel and God alone, but I'll show us how it applies to our lives. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 2. Read this with me loud and clear. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, To observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. For the next 12 verses... God shares with his people, here are the blessings you will receive if you walk in my ways. Now, if you know the story of Israel, it's quite a cyclical pattern. They would often do this for a time, and then they would slip into idol worship and immorality and inappropriate sexual relations and going the ways of the pagan nations. And then God also made another promise. Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 15. Let's read this all together. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. God then gives almost 60 verses of what will happen to the nation of Israel if they do not obey his commands. And the time period we find ourselves in with Nehemiah is they have not obeyed the Lord's commands. The gates are burned with fire. People have been scattered all over the place. People are in captivity in the Medo-Persian Empire. The enemy has come in and destroyed and literally ripped down the temple, the wall, and the gates. Peace by peace. In our own lives, when we consider just the natural consequences of life, we talk to our kids about this often. There are unconditional parts of our relationship with our children, which means this. No matter what our kids do, both good or bad, as parents, what is our calling? We're to love our children, which means we pursue them 
and we discipline them and we bless them. But that's an unconditional covenant. There are conditional things in our household. If you clean your room, then you get to watch a movie tonight. The condition is what? Clean your room. If you don't do it, no what? No movie, right? For God's people, it was the same. And here's what Nehemiah is doing in his prayer. The first thing he begins with, look at verse 5. He says, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Nehemiah sets God in his prayer at the top, which means Nehemiah is where? He's somewhere down here. This is important to do in our prayer life because here's what can happen. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I've definitely been there. And my assumption is you have been too. Have you ever come to God with a prayer or really more so like, hey, God, here's the plan. <laughs> here's what I need you to do. And this is going to benefit both of us. You'll get your glory. I'll get my Maserati. We'll be good. Now we chuckle about that, but that creeps into our spiritual life pretty naturally. Because we have a default of wanting personal glory, gain, and pleasure. And what Nehemiah does in his prayer is so important. He says, God, you're up here. You're the God of heaven. You're the God of covenants. You always keep your covenant. I'm down here. This is a great way to start your prayers. Position matters in our relationship with God. It's very important. Because if we're ever equal or above God then we're no longer praying to the God of the universe, but we might as well be praying to ourselves because we become the God of the universe, the one who's going to fix everything, the one who's got the right plan. And we come to him without a heart of humility and instead a heart that wants to do what we want to do. But instead, Nehemiah puts God in the right position. And then he does something amazing. He calls upon the promises of God. He says, hey, I remember the covenant in Deuteronomy. And guess what? We've messed up. It's our fault. Nehemiah doesn't go blaming God, pointing the finger at him. If you would have just or if you could adjust. Instead, he says, hey, the children of Israel have sinned. And then he does something special. He says, my father's house have sinned. And he finishes it with what? I have sinned. I need to take ownership and responsibility for what I've done. And because of my sin, I can't get us out of this hole that we're in. This is what it looks like to be in a relationship with a savior, to raise our hand and go, I'm broken and in need. And you're the only one who can help me. That's what God is doing through Nehemiah. And it gives us a picture of his heart. Um, my aunt always says this, and I love it. Uh, God is a mean God. He means what he says. <laughs> and she's right. He does mean what he says. That's why he's a covenantal God. It's why he gives us his word, so that we can go back into the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, and we can cling to the things that God has promised us so that we can move in a divine direction instead of in selfish motives. And here's what we recognize. 
that even though this is a conditional relationship with God and Israel, he's given us as the church specific promises that we can cling to in our own life. Just a couple of examples. The entire book of Revelation is looking forward to what? Oh boy, second service. (laughs) Here's what it sounded like from my end. (laughs) The apocalypse. (laughs) The whole book of Revelation is looking toward what? The Savior returning. The second coming of Jesus Christ. This is a promise. It's a promise. It's something that we are to cling to, that we're to look forward to. So that when we're feeling hopeless, when we look at our society and we're like, oh, it's going to hell in a handbasket. There's no point in doing anything. Just let everybody take over. Let's just pray for Jesus to come back. At least you got that. (laughs) But it gives us hope that there's something far greater than ourselves. And what's needed is his return. Because no matter how hard we try, which he's going to call us to in our own specific ways, He holds the key to life. Another promise. Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. It's a simple verse. It's a powerful verse and a promise. So that when in our own sin we mess up for the thousandth time. And we go before God. We don't have to go before him going, God, I'm just... Don't even forgive me. I'm worthless. I did it again. It's pointless. Don't, don't. No, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, which means there still needs to be repentance. But repentance leads to the resurrection hope. Repentance leads us to remembering that Christ left heaven, came to earth, died and paid for our sins, and was raised from the dead. We also know And James, James talks about when we draw near to God, what's the promise? He draws near to us. And here's why that's so important. Do you think Nehemiah was feeling close to God at this moment? Hearing about his brethren, recognizing he's stuck in Medo-Persia, serving a very wicked king in Artaxerxes? Probably not. But the truth of God's word is that when we draw near to him, when we get into the word, when we get into prayer, when we're in fellowship with other believers, God is drawing near to us whether we feel it or not. And that is important because our feelings are deceptive. And the beauty of what God is doing through Nehemiah is he's showing us how to pray in response to what God puts on our hearts. How to respond to divine passion, fasting, prayer. The next one is repentance. Nehemiah models this well. It's part of our salvation journey. We must repent of our sins. You can't earn God's trust or faith or favor by showing up to church or giving enough money or walking enough people across the street or serving at soup kitchens. Our righteousness, God compares it to filthy rags. It just is nothing. And yet through repentance, we receive the blood spilled on the cross and his resurrection, which covers anything and everything we could ever do. Repentance is a sign of humility in our heart. And it's not simply just an I'm sorry. It's about doing a 180 degree turn going, I know what I've been doing is sinful. And I, my desire is to go this way. And sometimes we find ourselves getting pulled back or even headed back that direction. But when we repent of our sins, here's what it does. 
It leads us to hope. Repentance leads to hope. It's the fourth response to God putting something on our heart. And here's why that's so important. Oftentimes for both, especially for Christians, if you suffer from an addiction or if you have a habitual sin, there's nothing more frustrating than knowing in your brain how bad that thing is for you and how it breaks your relationship with God and feeling stuck that you can't get out. And this is when the enemy comes in and he condemns you. He challenges your salvation. And there is an aspect of our guilt that is good, but God does not leave us feeling guilty. He leaves us feeling hopeful. That's the whole purpose of repentance is it leads us to hope. And the hope is found in the redemption that God has bought for his people, even in Nehemiah. Nehemiah gives credit. Look at verse 10. He says, now these are your servants. Whose servants? God's servants and your people. Nehemiah is not saying, hey, these are my people. I'm going to take care of them. Nehemiah says, these are your people. These are your servants. And he says, whom you have redeemed. Nehemiah does not see himself as the savior. He sees himself as an instrument in God's hands. And it's so easy for us in our own Christian lives to start playing Jesus before we even know what we're doing. We can do it in our marriage. We can do it with our kids. We can do it with other people in our communities where accidentally or sometimes even intentionally, we become the savior. And Nehemiah puts God in his proper place and allows himself to be lower and says, hey, you have redeemed your people by your great power and your strong hand. How is God going to rebuild the gates of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall, renew God's people through Nehemiah's strength? Of course not. Nehemiah goes, it has to be you, Lord. It has to be you. But I'm willing to be used however you see fit. Still with me this morning? Nehemiah chapter 2. Don't worry, we only have nine more chapters. Just kidding. Just going to go through verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 2. He's prayed. And we get some insight into how long he's been praying. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. This is packed with goodness here. Don't miss this. We started at the beginning of chapter 1 in the ninth month. What month is it now according to the Hebrew calendar? It's the first month. How many months have gone by for you math majors? <laughs> one math major. Four months, right? Four months. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, one. Oh, all right, it's all right. It's probably been about four months, which tells us this. How long has Nehemiah been praying? Four months in my own life. It's so easy for me to pray a prayer one time or maybe a couple of times or to be passionately moved about something in a moment. But then if it doesn't happen or that feeling goes away, what do I often stop doing? I stop praying. Nehemiah has been praying for four 
months. He's in it for the long haul. He knows that this passion God has put on his heart is from the Lord. Therefore, he's not going to stop persevering and enduring in prayer. And my encouragement is for you to do the same. Do you know how many stories Pastor Dave and I have the privilege of hearing from people going, we've been praying for my son for 25 years and he came to Jesus. 25 years. That's a long time to wait. Abraham and Sarah know something about that from the book of Genesis. Or we hear about people saying, hey, I've, I grew up with this friend. This guy was like, there's no way he's even going to live into his 20s. And now he's on the mission field. God is in the habit of doing amazing things. And he calls us to participate by having endurance and perseverance in prayer. Because it's not about us in that sense. It's about God's power and his strong arm and what he can do. And instead of putting the pressure on ourselves, which we were never meant to carry, we continue to bring it to the feet of Jesus. It's the first month. And here's what I love. Nehemiah comes to King Artaxerxes and it says wine was before him. This doesn't necessarily mean it was party time, although it was just about party time every day in the Medo-Persian Empire. What it means is Nehemiah just went to work and did his job. What's his job? He's a what? He's a cupbearer. It's his job to bring the king wine. All he's doing is getting up on Monday morning and he's going to work. This is the beauty of how God works and moves in our lives. Nehemiah isn't doing anything fantastic right now. He hasn't gotten this glorious vision with angels and lights and gold dust falling from the air. He simply had a passion put on his heart. He's remained faithful in prayer. And a day comes where he's just doing what he does every day with the king. And this is the day God's going to go, I'm going to use you today. It's no different than when you go to that same stinking cubicle Monday through Friday. Or when you're stuck at home with the kids and you feel like you're trapped. Or when you're into retirement and you're trying to figure out what in the world to do. God gives us small things to steward so that when we steward them well, he uses them simply for small responses, which can make a tremendously big difference in people's lives. This is the day that Nehemiah calls, or God calls Nehemiah. And it says in verse 1 at the end that Nehemiah had never been sad in the king's presence. Um, this is important because you don't show up to work in the Medo-Persian Empire for King Artaxerxes. Like, oh, hey, I just don't feel good today. I think I'm going to call out sick. <laughs> Artaxerxes will find somebody else. And you'll find yourself not only out of a job, but without a head. <laughs> No joke, right? We go back to Esther's time period. The rule was, if you came before the king unannounced, legally, he had every right to do what? To execute you. This was serious business. Nehemiah had never appeared sad in the presence of the king before. Verse 2. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you are not sick and you don't have COVID. <laughs> This is nothing but the sorrow of heart. So I, Nehemiah, became dreadfully afraid. Listen, this shows the relationship between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. 
it was close, close enough for Artaxerxes to go, hey, dude, what's up with you today? I've never seen you like this. Your heart's sick. You're distraught in here. It's not because you're physically sick. What's going on, buddy? That's amazing that God allowed Nehemiah to have that kind of relationship with the most powerful king on the planet. And you know how it grew? One small day at a time, spending time together, simply being faithful in what he was called to do, to bring the cup before the king and to make sure that the king stayed safe. Nothing amazing, but faithfulness and time. God builds his people in order to use them for mighty things. Verse 2, this is nothing but sorrow of heart, so I became dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah is terrified that the king has noticed. Artaxerxes has the power to end Nehemiah's life, and yet here is what Nehemiah has been praying about for four months. Here's the moment that he's called to speak up. And look at verse 3. He said to the king, may the king live forever. Really good response to the king noticing that you're sad. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? This is a tremendous risk that Nehemiah is taking for more than just the reason of being sad in front of the king. Who was it that destroyed Jerusalem in the first place? It was the ancestors of Artaxerxes, Nebuchadnezzar. And as you go down the line, there's something even more intense about this conversation. In the book of Ezra, we learned that there were already some people who had tried to rebuild Jerusalem. And the enemies of God write letters to King Artaxerxes himself and say, hey, this is happening. We don't want you to forget Jerusalem used to be a rebel city against you. And here is Artaxerxes' response. Look at Ezra with me on the screens. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. This is Artaxerxes speaking. And I gave the command and a search has been made. And it was found that this city, meaning Jerusalem, in former times has revolted against the kings. And rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. Therefore, it's an enemy to Artaxerxes. There have also been mighty kings, referring to King David and King Solomon, over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river. And tax tribute and custom were paid to them. In other words, here's what Artaxerxes is saying. It's no different, but on a bigger scale, when my kid comes to me and goes, Hey, Dad, I know you said we couldn't have ice cream, but can we have ice cream? <laughs> it's what Nehemiah is doing. Hey, I know you said we couldn't rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but uh, can we rebuild the city of Jerusalem? <laughs> and here's the difference. God ordained timing through fasting, through prayer, through repentance, and through hope have led Nehemiah to this place where he has understanding. He's simply just answering God's call, walking in his will. And God is the one orchestrating the timing. The answer had already been no by the most powerful king in the world. And here Nehemiah stands, walking in obedience to God's will, asking again, can we rebuild the city of Jerusalem? Verse 4, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the king. Or excuse me, that's very wrong. So I prayed, <laughs> seeing if you're awake still. 
So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love this. Nehemiah has already been praying for four months. And yet the king goes, okay, so what do you want? And Nehemiah's like, let me pray real quick. <laughs> we laugh at that. But think of this. When you're in the heated moment in a conversation with your spouse, what should you do? You should pray. When you find yourself at work and you're faced with a moral decision about whether to fudge a number or not, what should you do? You should pray. And we could go on and on down the list. And this is what Nehemiah does. He doesn't come with his chest puffed out going, oh, I've heard from God. He simply in humility goes, Lord, this is the opportunity you've given me. Help me to steward well. And look at what Nehemiah's response is. It's clear he had things planned out. He says to the king in verse 5, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. What a bold request from Nehemiah. And yet perfectly in God's timing and his will, as Nehemiah has responded to this passionate desire that was placed on his heart. You see, Nehemiah had vision. And here's what vision is. Vision is knowing where you are and aiming at where God wants you to be. Vision is knowing where you are and aiming at what God wants you, where God wants you to be. Think about this. Jesus and God the Father had vision. They looked at the human race, wicked and dying and corrupt, headed for destruction. God sends his son in order to die and be resurrected so that the human race could be where God wants it to be. Now, it's a free gift. It's an invitation. It's an offer. Not everyone receives it. But there was vision from God starting in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm sure before that, in his infinite person, in which he had a plan, he had a vision of knowing where we were and where he wanted us to be. Nehemiah has the same vision. Here I am. I'm a cupbearer to the king. I'm here in the Medo-Persian Empire. I believe God wants me in Jerusalem, helping to oversee the rebuilding of his holy city. And he takes the opportunity to make the ask. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him. This is interesting because what it tells us is there was probably an entire court of people. This wasn't a little intimate time between the king and Nehemiah. An entire court had been gathered. Nehemiah is making some bold requests in front of the Medo-Persian court. And the king says, hey, how long? How long is this going to take? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Um, we don't get the specific time period that Nehemiah set. But if you're wise, which Nehemiah was, he probably set a short time period. And here's what we know. It eventually took Nehemiah 12 years to accomplish all that God had prepared. And yet because he stewarded his short time well, he was given more time and eventually became governor of Judah because King Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah. Small things that God gives us to steward, which can make a very big difference in the lives of God's people. We continue in verse 7. We see that uh, Nehemiah is a smart guy. It says, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, 
that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Who's getting the credit? God is. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Um, We're going to go through this really fast. But when we talk about goals, when we talk about resolutions, there's some practical matters that Nehemiah shows us that will help us to be successful in these things as we seek God's face, that they are a divine passion from him and not simply selfish motives from ourselves. Achievable goals require these three things. Accountability, realistic timeline, and a resource plan. Accountability, realistic timeline, and a resource plan. We know that ultimately Nehemiah is accountable to God, but he also has human accountability. Who is his human accountability? It's the king. Hey, I'm asking to be able to do this under your authority and under your good grace. I will be held accountable to you. In our own lives, we need accountability in order to accomplish what God calls us to. It's why we have spiritual authority. It's why we need mentors. If you're going to a gym and you're trying to get in shape, it's way easier to do that if you have what? Accountability, which can either be a really good friend or this thing called a scale. It just depends on what you, what you want to use as your accountability. Nehemiah has accountability in his life. He also sets a realistic timeline. The king wants to know how long is this going to take? Nehemiah has spent time in prayer and in planning and in preparation for this moment to where he's able to give the king a timeline and the king goes, that seems reasonable. In our society, it's so easy for us to get caught up in wanting something right away. If you want to be the spiritual leader of your home and you are not as a husband, it's not going to happen overnight. Set a realistic timeline for yourself. And that can involve you growing individually in God's word you growing with your spouse in God's word, and you growing as a parent discipling your children. It won't happen in one day. But if you set a realistic timeline for yourself of, hey, in one year, I'd like to be consistently leading Bible studies with my kids and it not feel like a chore to my family. That's realistic. And to go along with that realistic timeline is a resource plan. Nehemiah knew, I need the letters of authority, to get through all these lands that hate the Jews. I need timber or lumber in order to rebuild the gates and the citadel and the temple and my house. Then I also need an army of men to protect us because there's going to be problems. He knows the resources he needs. And following the example of becoming the spiritual leader of your home, here's an encouragement to you. This is really practical, but it might be helpful to you. If you don't know how to lead family Bible studies, go purchase the Jesus Storybook Bible. This isn't made by the Mission Church. It's not like we make money off this. It's a little kid's Bible full of pictures and short stories. Paragraphs are like three sentences long. And you read one of those to your kids twice a week. And you will find that your kids will grow in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And who else is going to grow in that process? You will. You will. It's small, 
but it's a resource to have so you don't have to do it all by yourself. I promise you, if you try to open up the book of Nehemiah with your kids and you've never done that before, it's probably not going to go the way that you want. The purpose of seeking to accomplish goals is that kingdom goals accomplish God's will and serve others. Goals we set that are kingdom goals accomplish God's will and serve others. Not our will, not to our benefit, not to our riches, not to our bank account. It accomplishes God's will and it serves others. Those goals serve others. When we think of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We're going to finish in verse 10. Appreciate your endurance with me. Verse 10 could easily be glossed over, but it is important. Verse 10 says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official... These are sworn enemies of Israel. They hated the Jews. When they heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Friends and family, make no mistake. When you have kingdom goals that are set to accomplish God's will and to serve others, you should expect opposition. It's inevitable. There is a real enemy that wants to put a stop to what God is doing, not only in your life, but in the life that will be affected or the lives that will be affected through Christ in you. And here's the good news. Expect opposition, but know that God has equipped you for every good work. God equipped Nehemiah for the good work, and he did it one day at a time. Nothing magical. Nothing overwhelmingly spectacular, just in his day job. And yet through faithfulness and fasting and prayer and repentance and hope, God did a mighty work in a man who remained faithful to God. And Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. And with the help of Ezra and others, they restore Jerusalem to where it becomes a center where God's people can worship him again. This is what he desires to do in our life. The broken areas of who we are. God desires to renew those for the purpose of our body, our heart, our mind, our soul, our careers, our families. To be a place where God is worshipped and where he is a light in our life. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.